Good morning, and thank you guys for having me here today. Um, as Susan mentioned, uh, my name's Brad Kurz. Um, I live in Hannibal. I grew up on a small family farm west of Frankfort, Missouri, um, and have been in northeast Missouri the majority of my, my life. Um, I spent about 10 years in education uh, prior to a career change, and half of that was in Hannibal High School, teaching math and coaching basketball. Um, but now, I, as, as she mentioned, I'm a financial advisor here and live in Hannibal with my, uh, my wife, Sarah, and, and, and two kids. Um, you know, as when I was preparing for the message today, um, I guess I'd ask you to do this. Think back to your, to, back to the first time maybe you had someone teach you how to speak in public or how to write a story. Uh, did you ever have a public speaking class or course maybe or a creative writing course of some kind? And if you did, how would how would, how'd they teach you to, to start off? I'm guessing some way they encourage you to grab the reader's attention or if you're speaking to grab the audience's attention, right? Maybe you would tell a story um, or a humorous joke or, or start with a quote by some famous author. I'm gonna guess that no one ever taught you to recite from a genealogy, did they? No? But that's how the book of Matthew starts the New Testament, um, with a genealogy. And I had long believed this was the most boring chapter in the entire Bible. Um, and I guess if, I'm, if my message today had a, uh, had, a, had a title, that's what it would be, the most boring chapter in the Bible. Hopefully this isn't the most boring sermon you've ever heard or message you've ever heard, but I think Matthew 1, and I can specifically remember thinking that it was when I used to be the high school principal at Bowling Green, and I had about a 30-minute commute because I still lived in Hannibal, and I had been challenged by a friend to listen to, to listen, use that commute to listen to the entire Bible in a year, and I decided to do so in chronologically. And I see you guys have a daily reading plan, and just kind of like that, I decided to do a chronological reading plan through the scriptures. But every day I'd get in my truck, I'd hit play on the, the app on my phone, I'd set it in my seat, and I'd listen to those scriptures on the way to work every morning. Well, I can remember, you know, you worked all the way through the Old Testament, it was the fall and this has been about 15 years ago, but it was the fall, I was kind of excited because I finally got to the New Testament. And I can remember, I pulled out on the highway, and a few minutes later, I'm like, man, I'm, I was almost dozed off a little bit. It was just boring me to death to read the list of this genealogy. And I distinctly remember thinking, this is the most boring chapter in the entire Bible. But it stuck with me, and it stuck with me, and I kept thinking about that. Why is that in there? What's so important about it? And I remember thinking, you know, there's a lot of other ways you could have started the New Testament. And one thing that popped into my head is a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. You know, that's, that's how you start Star Wars The New Hope. I'm like, no, oh, that wouldn't quite be right. But, or, um, you know, if like uh, fairy tales always start how? Once upon a time, right? But in fact, I was thinking through that, and if there were kids here today, I was going to grill them on what their favorite fairy tale was, whether it's Cinderella or Sleeping Beauty or uh, Snow White or something. Nowadays, usually they say Frozen, I think, if you ask them that question. But the boys would probably say, we don't like fairy tales, we like superheroes. 
Right? So they would may argue about DC comics or Avengers comics and who their favorite superhero is. But whether, whether you're a fan of fairy tales or superheroes, they've got some of the same elements, right? You know, every one of those classic stories, there's good, and then there's an obstacle of some kind that represents evil. And it could be an evil stepmother, it could be an evil character, um, a spell cast over the beast, whatever it may be, there's some element of evil in so many of those classic fairy tales or the classic superhero stories. And there's a hero, or a heroine in some cases, that has to overcome the evil in some way. Whether it be they've got to overcome, they use magic from a fairy godmother like Cinderella, or an act of true love like they say in some of the fairy tales, or maybe they need superpowers like in the Avengers. But in the, in the end, the good prevails and there's usually a happy ending at the ends of those stories. And I got thinking, you know, there's some similarities between those fairy tales and the New Testament. There's, there's, there's evil. It's still a battle between good and evil. There's a hero. We know who the hero is. But there's a difference. And the difference is this New Testament's all true. And so I guess maybe it doesn't make sense to start out with Once Upon a Time, but why start out with a genealogy? Well, I'm going to bore you for the next, couple, next few seconds here as I read this first chapter of Matthew. And if you want to turn to that, first chapter of Matthew, I'm going to read the first 17 verses of the New Testament. And I'm reading from the ESV version. I should have asked if there's a preference, if you guys have a preference, but that's what I've got in my hands. That's what I'll read from today. So Matthew chapter 1, I'll read verses 1 to 17. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, and Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matin, and Matin the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ." So in all the generations from Abraham to David, there were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. You may wake up your neighbor if they dozed off there a little bit. You know, do you know what the key is to pronounce those Old Testament names? 
Do so confidently because nobody else knows how to pronounce half of them either way. If you do it confidently, they're going to assume that maybe you're right. So uh, I'm sure that I mis mis mispronounced a few of those. But you see what I mean? Isn't that kind of a boring read? The, uh, so why would Matthew start off this New Testament with a genealogy? And you might just leave that Bible open in your pews because we may come back to it in a minute. But I would ask you, why does he start off like that? Well, it reminds me, uh, Tim Keller is one of my favorite Christian authors, and he's a pastor of a Presbyterian church in New York City. And he, in one of his books, he writes, the gospel is good news, not good advice. You see, advice is counsel encouraging someone to do something, while news is a report of something that's already been happened. Advice urges the receiver to take action while news simply tells you the action and urges you just to respond. For advice, if someone gives us advice, it's up to us to do something with it. But if it's news, it's already been done. So when Matthew starts off this New Testament, he's not telling us a fairy tale. He's not telling us a superhero story. He's telling us, he's giving us a news report. This is stuff that's already been done. This story has already happened. He's not trying to grab our attention. He's listing facts that demonstrate the validity of the news he's about to tell us, the news that was promised in the Old Testament. It's news about those descendants of Abraham, about the lineage of King David, about the tribe of Judah. And it's, the readers are introduced to the New Testament by drawing on all those promises from the Old to demonstrate this is what was promised. You're about to see it unfold. See, so why did Matthew begin with a genealogy? Well, because he wanted us to know that the gospel's good news. It's not good advice or just a good story. But there's a second reason, I think, that Matthew used a genealogy to kick this off. And he was writing to a Jewish audience that's very different than you and I. Consider for a moment in those days that a genealogy in some way was similar to maybe a resume. And bear with me here for a minute, but if, when do you fill out a resume? Well, if you're wanting to make a formal introduction to someone, right? Whether it be for a scholarship application, applying to college, applying for a job, um, or a position on a board of some kind, but you're wanting to make a formal introduction. Well, in those ways, in those days, a genealogy and who you were connected with was one way to make that formal introduction. But let's just think about a resume for a minute. If you're putting together a resume, and it's been a while since I put together a resume, what are you going to include on there? Well, maybe some relevant work experiences, uh, your education, maybe some accomplishments. But you're going to try and put your best foot forward on a resume, right? For instance, if maybe you went right out of high school, you went to college for a semester and just didn't take things seriously and didn't do so hot and, and flunked out, then you went back home, got your act together, went back to college and did much, took it more seriously and got a four-year degree, on your resume, do you think you're going to mention that first semester that you didn't really take seriously? Probably not, right? Or if you're listing references, and you think about all the bosses you'd worked for, the ones you got along with great, that saw your potential, you're going to list those. But if there is that one supervisor who you just really didn't see eye to eye with, you may just omit them, right? You're wanting to put your best foot forward uh, anytime you put together a resume. But 
And let's ask you this. If you're reading a resume, what are you looking for? I can remember when I was principal in Bowling Green, I had a, had a PE position. This was 2008. And we had 150 applicants for one PE position. I had a stack of 150 applic resumes that I had to flip through. So you kind of start skimming. And you looked for a couple things. I looked for where they go to school because I knew some colleges had a better reputation. We'd hire teachers that were really good and some were not quite as strong. I looked for what's their work experience. Had they taught somewhere before? Had they had some relevant work experience? Um, and I also looked for their references. Do I trust, know any of these references that I trust that I can ask for an opinion, right? So you're skimming through looking for a few clues. So if you skim through that genealogy, then consider that kind of um, a resume, what, what jumps out to you? What names jump out to you there? Well, you notice, the first thing I noticed when I skimmed through there was some of the, the Old Testament um, heroes like Abraham. You pick out that one pretty quick. Isaac, Jacob, King David, you see his name in there. There's Solomon's name in there. But then I noticed in, in my version, several times it says the mother of. But now, I'm not a doctor, but I do know it listed men and just a few women, but I'm pretty sure there was an equal number of men and women involved in that whole process of the genealogy, right? But they're only listed a few women. How many women are listed in there? you go back and count, there's, who, who are the women that are listed in there if you've got it open? Well, there's, Ruth is mentioned, Rahab, Tamar, Mary's the obvious one, right? And the other one, it doesn't even mention name, it just says, the wife of Uriah. There are five women mentioned in the genealogy. Why? Why did they list those five names? Do you think it would have been common in those days when Matthew was writing, the, when the book of Matthew was written, for women to be listed in the genealogy? I wondered, why, it struck me, why are there those five women listed and only those five women? So let's go through each one of those and take a minute, and we'll kind of recap the story. And, and see if we can piece together why we think those five names might be included in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. We'll start with Ruth. That's an easy one. She's got a whole book of the Bible named after her, right? And one thing unique about the book of Ruth is it's the only Bible book of the Bible that's told from a woman's perspective. Uh, but you remember that story? So Elimelech and Naomi were from Bethlehem. And I'm not, this is, if you wanted to read this in your Bible, obviously it's found in the book of Ruth, uh, but I'm just going to paraphrase it for you. Elimelech and Naomi were from Bethlehem. Because of a famine, they left and went to the land of Moab. Okay, now they had two boys, and their two boys married Moabite women. Well, Elimelech died, but there's two sons to take care of their mom, and, and they both got married. Uh, one of them married Ruth, one married a Moabite woman named Orpah. Well, obviously the men in that Wimpfat family didn't live very long because both the sons died. I said, all you have is Naomi and her two daughters that are left. And so Naomi tells the two daughters, you all are young. Why don't you go back to your families because I don't have any way to provide for you. Because as a, as a widow in those days, there were very few options. And so 
she tells him to go back. Orpah says, okay, see you guys later. I'm going back to my family. But Naomi, or I'm sorry, Ruth, in chapter 1, verse 16 of Ruth says, for, you, for where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. And Ruth goes with Naomi. They go back to Bethlehem, and they, she ends up being, it's a fantastic story of, it's, it's, there's a love story, and it's redemption, and she marries Boaz, and, and they're protected, and she, they have a wonderful, it's, that's a good ending for that story. So as I think back to that story of Ruth, I think, okay, it's a fascinating story of loyalty, of Ruth's loyalty to her mother-in-law. Um, there, there's some romance involved in that story, but it's a redemptive story, too. And so why would Ruth be included? I can see some positive qualities there. Um, okay, well, who's next? Well, the next one I jumped out to me was Rahab. I thought, wait a minute. You remember Rahab's story, right? From the Old Testament? She's in the, in the second chapter of Joshua. So if you remember, the first chapter of Joshua, he just takes over the reins from Moses. And I'll summarize the first chapter of Joshua by saying God told Joshua to be strong and courageous like 50 times in that first chapter. And then we get the second chapter. So Joshua's taken over. He sends two spies to Jericho. And the spies are, are be, need to hide. They go to a prostitute's house. Rahab the prostitutes where they hide. And the king, the king of Jericho gets word that these spies are in the, the territory. So he sends soldiers to knock on Rahab's door and says, where are the spies? Rahab sends them on a wild goose chase and says, they went that way while she hides them on and so then she goes to the spies and says, listen, if you'll protect me, I'll protect you. Protect me and my family, and I'll make sure you get out of here alive. And so they made a deal. And so how did they protect her? Well, they told her to hang, hang, hang a scarlet cord out her window, and Rahab and her family would be protected. Joshua chapter 6, verse 25 says, Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men. Joshua had sent his spies to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. Now, why was Rahab included in there? I mean, Ruth had some positive qualities, but Rahab? She was a prostitute that hid some Israelite spies and lied to the king of Jericho. I was kind of confused when I worked this why she was included in there. I mean, it's, that would be kind of like an entertaining couple scenes in an action movie, what happened in the story of Rahab. But as far as why it would be included in the genealogy of Christ, I kind of struggled with that. But I got even more confused when I brushed up my memory on the story of Tamar. Or Tamar. Do you remember that one? It's not quite as common. It's found in Genesis, look a little farther in the Bible, Genesis 38. Now, we got a love story about Ruth, an action adventure about Rahab, this story about Tamar would not be rated PG. Um, it's one of the most strange, bizarre stories anywhere in the scripture. And to set your frame of reference, Tamar married Abraham's great-great-grandson. So it was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and his firstborn son's name was Ur, um, and Tamar was Ur's wife. Well, you don't hear much about Ur because he died early. So then, as custom there, they gave Tamar to the second son, who died shortly after that. And there was a third son named Shelah, but Judah said, you know, Tamar, Shelah's not quite old enough to be married yet. Why don't you go on back to your family 
and we'll call you when Sheila's ready. Don't call us, we'll call you. And so he sends Tamar back to, the, that, back to her family, but he starts thinking, Man, this lady's bad luck. I mean, my, she, two of my kids that have been married to her have died shortly after that. I don't know that I really want Sheila hanging around with her. And so he never calls her, and there's no intent to. Well, eventually Tamar realizes that Sheila is of age, but yet he has never called for her to come back and marry Sheila. So Rahab takes action into her own hands. She goes out to a, to a place where she knew that Judah, her father-in-law, would be passing by, and she disguises herself as a prostitute and, we'll say, solicits business from Judah. And as they negotiate wages, they decide, I guess the going rate's one young goat during those days, and, but he doesn't have a young goat with him, so she says, well, leave your staff, your cord, and your seal with me, and you can pay me later. We'll send the young goat later. So they transact their business, and he does so. The next day, he, he carries on, goes on, and sends some servants of his with a young goat to deliver to the prostitute who was veiled, who he did not recognize. Well, she had left and gone. They couldn't find her. And so they're kind of, he's kind of embarrassed by this. He's like, well, don't keep asking around. Just come on back, and we'll just kind of forget it ever happened. And so that transpired. Three months later, word comes back to Judah that his daughter-in-law is pregnant. And he never has married her to his youngest son, Sheila. And Judah's response is, then bring her out and burn her. Now, burning her was putting her to death, but not just putting her to death. It was the most humiliating way possible in those days. So by his declaration of burning her, it was... I mean, in those days, the justifiable action for, for infidelity would have been death, but by burning her, it would have been taking it a whole step further. And so, but she said, so they send people to go get her, and she doesn't fight it. She says, okay, that's fine. I'll take my punishment. By the way, take this staff, this cord, and this seal to my father-in-law, and let him know that whoever owns these, that's the father of this child. And so when those are presented to Judah, he realizes what's happened. And he says in, those, in that time, he says that um, she is more righteous than I, since I would not give her to my son, Sheila. So she goes on to give birth to twin sons, Perez and Zerah, as it was mentioned in that scripture. Yeah, that's in the Bible. I mean, that's just one of the strangest stories, I think, that's in there. And so let's kind of hit the pause button for a minute and summarize a couple things. The Bible is not just a collection of stories for us to read for inspiration or a moral example of how to live our lives. Because if it was, I don't see that story of Tamar being in there. The Bible is one big story. And it's God's story. And we have to look at the individual. If we look too hard at just the individual stories, we miss the big picture on how it all fits together. So let's look at some commonalities of these three, and then we'll get to the fourth one, which is Uriah's wife. Um, they were, there were two widows, Tamar and Ruth. And in those days, a widow was pretty hopeless. There was no source of protection, no source of income, especially if one became a widow a little later in life. And, but also two of them were foreigners. Ruth and Rahab were both foreigners. Um, now, 
foreigners have different cultures, different values, different experiences, different backgrounds. You know, they don't have the same understanding of things that we do. Foreigners weren't chosen by God like the Jewish people were. They didn't even know God. But two of them also were prostitutes. Tamar on that one instance, but Rahab, that was her career up until the time when she met the spies that were prostitutes. So what can we learn from that? Well, I think there's a, the big thing is to know is that God's grace is extended to widows, foreigners, and prostitutes. Now, when I say widows today, who are the hopeless in today's society? Well, it's ch- maybe it's children born in just terrible circumstances or someone with no family support when they fall on hard times and nowhere to turn. Um, anybody who seems to find their life in a situation that may seem hopeless, you know, those are kind of the widows in today's society. But God's grace is for the foreigners. When I say foreign, yeah, folks from anywhere and everywhere, regardless of their legal status, God's grace is extended to them. And, but even beyond that, it could be, the foreigner could be anyone who's unsaved, anyone who didn't grow up understanding the gospel and honoring those traditions of faith especially those who have different backgrounds, cultures, or values than us. God's grace is still offered to them in equal measure. And God's grace is for the prostitutes. Is anyone that uses God, the, the prostitute, uh, you could take them in a very literal sense, but you also could think about it as anyone who uses God's gifts more for pleasure and self-gratification than for service to glorify God could kind of fall into that category. And this could be any of us in some instances, but it could especially mean those that are struggling with addictions of some kind. I think it kind of fall into that category. Um, folks who may be given the temptations of the flesh rather than the spirit could all kind of fall into that category. So as we work through this, the first real light bulb that clicked on for me was that God's grace, if, 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 they're will, if Jesus is willing to name widows, prostitutes, and foreigners in his genealogy, well, God's grace is for all of us. I think that's one message of Matthew 1. But there's one more I want to talk about. Obviously, Mary's the easy one. We get why she was included, so we won't get into her today. But it mentions Uriah's wife. It doesn't even mention her by name, but Uriah's wife. So who's Uriah's wife? In fact, who's Uriah? Well, if you look back... um, Uriah was one of David's mighty men when David was fleeing from Saul. He was one of the guys that hid out in the cave with David. I mean, he was, he was there willing to go through harsh treatment to, to watch David's back. That's who Uriah was. And later when David became king, Uriah was one of his soldiers. And Bath, David's, Uriah's wife is Bathsheba. Her story is told in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And I'll refresh your memory. This is the story many of you know. David's at home, and Scripture says it's when kings usually go out to war, but he chose not to. He's at home on the roof of his palace and and sees Bathsheba bathing and decides he lusts for her and sins for her. Um, And so he commits adultery. Later he receives word that she's expecting and decides he wants to kind of cover that up. So he sends from Uriah to come back from the army and give him a report. He specifically requests Uriah, gives him a report. He said, great, thanks for the report. Why don't you go home and, and, and stay the night in your own house with your wife, and then I'll send you back out tomorrow. But Uriah doesn't. He sleeps with the servants 
in the palace because he said, and David says, hey, why didn't you go home last night? And Uriah said, how can I go home when my other soldiers are sleeping out in the wilderness fighting battle? How can I go home to the comforts of my own house? So David says, well, I'll try again. I'll get him drunk. That'll make him change his mind. And so that night he keeps him in. They throw a banquet. He gets him drunk, and he still does not go home. He stays in the palace. And so David's plan of covering this up was foiled. And so David sends him back out to war, but also sends a message to his commander and says, charge into battle, make sure Uriah is up in front, and then fall back so that Uriah is killed. And that's exactly what Joab does. He makes sure that Uriah, sets, he sets up the battle so that Uriah is killed and sends a message back to David. The message back to David said basically, sorry, we lost the battle, but and Uriah the Hittite was one of the men killed. And David's response was basically, eh, can't win them all. But then Nathan, the prophet, if you remember, seeks an audience with David and lets David know that his sins are not hidden. This is that they know that God knows what's going on and convicts David. David repents. Um, and you can read the whole story, which is fascinating, but David does repent um, and, and, and admits that he, he did make a big mistake. And so that's that whole story there. In fact, he and Bathsheba go on to have a son, Solomon, who later is in, included in this genealogy. But why would, Matthew, why would the author of Matthew write Uriah's wife instead of just listing her name? Well, I think he wants to make sure we, know the, we remember the whole story. Um, because if you read that verse 6, it sounds kind of strange. When you read it, it says, um, it says that David, uh, let me find it, I don't have it handy. It said that David had, the, had Solomon by Uriah's wife. I mean, it reads really weird when you look at it like that. But it's because the author wants us to remember the story. He doesn't want to skip over the fact. He wants it to stand out. Now, omitting Bathsheba's name is not a slight of Bathsheba. I think it's making sure that we don't forget about that sin of King David. But King David? I mean, really, the same king who in Acts 13 they call a man after God's own heart? You know, in that one story, he committed four, he broke four of the Ten Commandments in that one story. He coveted his neighbor's wife, he committed adultery, he lied, and he committed murder. So what do we learn from all this? Well, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Because even those great figures in the Bible, like King David, can't earn grace or salvation. God's grace is for you and me. It's for the prostitute, the widows, the foreigners, but it's also for kings. And kings don't deserve it any more than the prostitutes, the widows, or the foreigners. Can they earn it? You know, it's not earned by either. There have been seasons in my life where I've come into the sanctuary embarrassed and shameful of things I've done in my past, where I probably resemble more those prostitutes, widows, and foreigners, where I think, how can God forgive me for what I've done? But and if you ever find yourself in that situation, it's important to remember that he, he offers that grace to all, and it's complete. And if you find yourself in that situation today with guilt and sin weighing on your heart, know that the reason Ruth, Rahab, Uriah's wife, uh, and, and Tamar are included in that genealogy is to remind us that his grace is offered for every one of us.
there's other seasons in my life when I start to feel maybe some pride in some of the things I've accomplished. I start to kind of pat myself on the back for, for doing this or doing that. And you see, the story of Uriah's wife grabs me by the collar and says, if King David, a man after God's own heart, can mess up like this and can't earn God's grace, why in the world do I think my good deeds are working towards that? See, it reminds us that we don't need to just repent of our sins, but we also need to repent for the reasons that we've done right. Because our reasoning for doing right should not be to earn God's favor or grace, but it could just be a reaction of thanks because he's done of so much he's done for us. No matter how good we are as people, we cannot earn that grace. It's a, it's a gift that's totally been given for free. And John 1.17 says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He came to fulfill that law, to die for us so that we can be offered that grace. The last scripture I'll read for you today is Hebrews 2.11. It says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. See, I think that message so clearly reads through that genealogy where Jesus isn't ashamed to have sinners in his family tree. He knows we're all sinners. But he offers the grace to us and calls us brothers or sisters if we accept his grace. What I thought was the most boring scripture of the Bible is what a fantastic transition for the rest of the story. Because it's all one big story. It's God's story of how he's, he's, he's used his son to offer grace to us. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, provider of all grace, some of us come before you today with sins in our past that haunt us. Cleanse our hearts of these stains. Forgive us. Guard our hearts from these sins of the past. Some of us come before you with, with righteous pride because of the good works that we've done recently. Evict that pride from our hearts. Prepare our hearts and minds to receive and understand this gift of grace that we cannot earn. In the name of your Son and in the presence of your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.